0: Why struggle through a post-merger integration when you can glide through it? Why deal with the PMI integration challenges when you can overcome them even before they occur? Why move slow when you can move at pace? What are the world's leading PMI experts doing right now to achieve profit-accelerating integrations? This podcast will give you all the answers to these questions and many more. My name is Dudley Peacock and Welcome to the 100 Days and Beyond podcast. Welcome, Mark. Mark Sapsford. Welcome to our show today.
1: Thanks, Dudley. Thanks very much.
0: I just want to introduce the audience to you and your wonderful offering. I think today we've already spoken with one other expert, and he was more on the marketing side. And I think for you coming in, on the finance side, I think would be incredibly valuable for our audience today. So your background, especially in the M&A side of things and understanding the intricacies of capital raising and finance and all that, I think that would be absolutely magnificent for our audience. So just to introduce, Mark Sapsford is co-founder and partner at CapEQ, B Corporation, Impact and Ethical M&A advisors, is that well said? Is that okay? At
1: least no, that's absolutely <laughs> well said, and that's exactly
0: who we are. Yeah, so I'm just <coughs> gonna read your summary briefly, Mark. So it's co-founder and partner of CapEQ, Europe's first accredited B Corp MA boutique. And I'd like to just get a little bit more information around that and That's very interesting about being the first accredited, and I think that we need to get an understanding what that is and also just get a bit of a detail about that. Just also around experienced corporate finance uh, professional dedicated to helping SME owners and corporations, which is fascinating because it's quite a wide range of entities that, that you work with. Helping SME owners and corporations navigate their way through business exits, acquisitions, and capital raising, a skilled transaction negotiator, trusted team leader, and critical friend to hundreds of entrepreneurs. I think that says it quite well. And having had a discussion with you pre- our live stream today mm-hmm. in our podcast, welcome, Mark. Give us a bit of a flavor. How how did you get into this? And where did you end up and cap EQ? Give us a bit of background around there.
1: All right, so a lot of questions, but let's see where we go. So I will be as brief as I possibly can, which is a challenge at the best of times. Mm. Um, okay, so uh, started my career in the Royal Air Force moving logistics equipment around the world on behalf of three tornado squadrons, then moved on to ExxonMobil and working for ExxonMobil and working with airlines around the world and negotiating fuel contracts for them, and then moving on to headhunting business, which I ran with a a husband and wife team and then went on to sell that and then basically realised that I knew an amount about M&A, but clearly needed to do a lot more of it and then worked for an organization then for going on 15 years and doing M&A essentially in the UK so working on the sell side predominantly in the UK and after two years was then asked to go out to the US and then set up a US operation which was in New York and lived and worked in New York for three and a half years and then built the operation out from there from New York down to Fort Worth across to California and up to Calgary And then returned back to the UK after three and a half years and then was asked to do the same thing again all the way down the rest of the world, down to Australia. So encompassing South Africa, most of Europe, Middle East, Switzerland and into China. And so did the first three transactions in each of those offices to make sure that we could replicate what we were doing. And then uh, uh, and the success went on from there. And then that then evolved to my partner and I, so James Pugh is my partner to sit down and go, okay, we've been really good at what we've done and set these other businesses up and whatever, but we want to do it in our own way. And our own way was qualified by deciding that we wanted to become a B Corp. And so what a B Corp is understanding the impact that we we have as as an organization on the planet. So thinking about our people and the profit and planet, And in that order, thinking about how we were going to set up a corporate finance house that was distinctly different to anyone else. And that started off with the core that we don't need B Corp to be over our heads to be ethical. We've always had a really strong ethical backbone and it was starting to get very clear that the, the industry was moving to a place that we didn't like. And so our view was, well, okay, well, we're going to stand up to that. So we're going to become a B Corp. So it takes you go through a process of evaluation that takes you probably three to four months. You then submit your evaluation. It then takes a year for them to assess and to make sure that you are standing up to what you've said you were going to do. And then you become hopefully certified. And we, as again, as you rightly say, we become the first corporate finance house in Europe to be certified as a B Corp, which was a huge thing for us and a huge thing for the team to be part of that. And so what it means is we invest in the four, four Ps. So people, planet, profit and performance and all of those are key to us so the people we invest in our people so making sure that the people are incentivized so mm-hmm. we share 10 percent of our profits at the end of the year and is distributed between the whole team and that means that everyone is incentivized in the same way to go on and do the right thing for the client and mm-hmm. the planet we absolutely dry drill down as much as we possibly can on how much impact we have on the planet so not allowing people to print information that we send out so we we send out a lot of electronic information that we can track and get performance out so we know when people are looking at information how long they've looked at it and when they've looked at it so again giving information back to our clients but also containing how much is an impact on the planet and then giving back to the local community and utilize the suppliers within our local 40 mile radius to be able to feed back into the local community and to take a local community with us and so that's how we've performed and quite rapidly and that yeah we're incredibly proud of what we've achieved and we now support as you rightly say smes within uk and europe and helping them to sell their businesses we also then work for listed entities that have identified that they want to grow through strategic acquisition and we walk through that process and identify whether that their vision is correct. And I mean that n- not to be headed, but it's just spe- speaking to them and identifying what they're trying to achieve to make sure it's in the right arena. And then we do capital raising, as you rightly say, for businesses in that are coming out of seed funding and going to series A, B and C. And we'll start to take them through that process of around the two million and above mark is what we look after.
0: Wow. I mean, the the amount of questions that come up in my head. I mean, just the complexity of the B Corp in itself is to achieve that is quite a feat because it's such a diverse number of things you need to be watching all the time. I mean, that's people which is sort of in-house and local, but also people in the community, et cetera. But also if you go out and then start looking at things like profit, you still got to make money. (laughs) Agreed. Yeah, No. Absolutely yeah you don't make anything else at least make some money and then and then i think then actually going into planet. i mean that's a huge ask and i think these days environmental impact is everywhere you might think that using a biodegradable bag for your refuse is a good thing but it probably had more carbon footprint than the other bags when they manufactured it kind of thing you could almost think about the entire supply chain although just going at least one back at least gets you on the path.
1: Yeah, um, and so I, think- I mean
0: that, That's already a big thing. And I'm sure even investing or doing finance uh, in, in that sort of mindset would also be pretty difficult. I don't know if you have any comments on that.
1: No, it is. And look, I think it, it is a responsibility as a business owner to start thinking this way. This is the way we need to think going forward in the future. We plant trees. We offset a huge amount of carbon each month. But for us, that wasn't the key. It wasn't to be able to greenwash or what we would term as greenwash. You know, we plant a load of trees, so we're flying all over the world. I mean, give all, if you go back in my history, I was flying all over the world, literally. But now it's a point of actually, no, you know, we'll plant trees, but we're not planting trees to then carry on with that behaviour. It is absolutely re-engineering everything that we do that says we lower our carbon significantly and we offset and we plant trees and we're doing helping the environment and doing everything we can it's a dual pr- process and what's key to this is when we work with clients you start identifying and start working with them on their own strategy and I think it's a responsibility of all of us not only business owners but everyone to start thinking about the planet in a wider issue and it's less about hugging trees and about doing things now and we've really got to do it so
0: yeah token environmentalist I think has come and gone I think that the time now is to really stand up for environment, planet, as you said. I want to just go back. I mean, if I look at your profile, I mean, you talk about sell-side transactions with a combined value of $162 million. I mean, that's significant. So that would have taken quite a lot of work. And especially if I take the amount of travel that you did, all the different continents that you worked in the cultural differences and so on. I mean, that that must have been a challenge in itself. Just going, I think, just going from the UK to the States to start with is already a jump. And then you end up in Australia, which is another jump, and then off to China, that's another jump. So tell us a little bit about that sort of cultural journey and the shift as you went through that process.
1: Yeah, and I think that's absolutely, and what I get out of bed for really the cultural differences and you have to operate in a global market on a colloquial level so the ability to understand that there is nuances in culture there is nuances in you know the way people operate there's a consistent theme I would say though across the world of how CEOs operate you know they Every, depending on if it's their baby and they've grown it to their substantially large organisation, there's a consistent theme with CEOs that you get the visionary and the uh, and the, just the loveliness of of what they've achieved and what on where they see their business. But then there is that subtlety that is the cultural subtleties that you just need to be aware of. And depending on what country you're in, depends on 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 what that and what strength that culture comes from and also it also varies from the end of the ceos and founders that you're working with that have either traveled and been around the world and understand the world in its in its entirety that then that makes it a little bit easier journey and if you don't grasp them really early on things can go wrong and transactions just won't happen because unfortunately as much as myself and my team can do everything we possibly can to get the business in the right shape and the right format there is ultimately you have to have an awareness of culture and that's huge and people sell from people buy from people and it's a people thing no matter what you say about the numbers and all the other elements that go into a transaction it is absolutely about the people and if you can get a good understanding then you know things can happen and you can also get through some really tough conversations Whereas if you're if you don't understand that dynamic, it becomes really tough. Yeah,
0: and I, I think that's what happens. And I suppose for the parts of the audience that's entering into the business world and trying to get their heads around the dynamic between, uh, let's call it, capitalist behavior, socialist behavior, communist behavior. If you look at those systems, and then how it actually translates into into real life across multiple organizations you would think a pure ceo if you like is purely profit driven and you know all about growth and that and often when businesses do go past hands and are sold often it's a lot more emotional there's a lot more of a connection or an identity being formed by the ceo or the founders at least to what they've created and they don't just want to offload their baby if you like to anybody and that's where these nuances come in so they might take a little bit lower price but at least they have a feel-good factor at the end of the transaction and the integration phase and once they feel they can sleep better at night somebody looking after their staff their employees that have looked after them for so many years even the community in which they've started their businesses especially if you're dealing on at the SME level I think the higher up you go it it becomes probably less prevalent but then yeah tell us a little bit about that sort of the difference between SME and corporate and an entrepreneur or a business owner founder letting go if you like
1: Yeah. And look, I I think that the best bit of advice I can give an entrepreneur is if you go through this process and you want to sell your entity, sell it for fit and ethos, don't sell it for value. And what I mean by that is if you get the right fit and ethos for your business within a purchaser, then the money will follow it. But if you're chasing the money, you're not getting the right fit and ethos for your business. And then in in two years, three years, four years time, you're laying on a beach and you start reading an article about your business that you sold you just won't sit there comfortably you know you have you've, you've not done the right by the business and for us it's incredibly important to think about the wider stakeholders within the business you know the, the individuals that you've employed yes you've paid their salaries every month without fail but those individuals have got that business to where it needs to be for you to be able to enjoy the spoils of your creation and so you have to think and you have to think responsibly about that wider audience but i think it's different so depending on where you are in your in that organization if you are the founder and you started the business and you know we're 20 years on it is you know you've gone through the the highs and lows of that business and we all know that business is part of that um you get to the end of the 20 years you come and sit in front of a team like our, ourselves or others and you start debriefing and getting ready and going through the preparation and the sale pro- process can take over a year to get over the line in fact mm. probably within a year and but during that period and we always say to our clients when we sit down with them look you know you're about to start on a Basically, you're a theme park And the preparation phase, we're going to go up and down the turnstiles waiting to get onto the roller coaster. Once we go live to market, we're going to be on the roller coaster. And that roller coaster then lasts probably nine months. And in that period, you're going to go through periods of falling back in love with the business that you've created. And you've been really tired and you're exhausted and you want to sell it. And somewhere in that process, you're going to fall back in love with it. You're going to hate it again. You're going to love it. And then you're going to have all the buyers throwing themselves around and saying all the things that you haven't done that they could have done better. And all of these things and all of these emotions. But in reality, getting to the end game is where you need to be. And so we hold the hand. And so that's the kind of journey for a CEO of an SME business. For a CEO of a listed entity, very rarely are they the individuals that started this business. They have a remit of growth. They have a remit of consolidation, a remit of, you know, cost cutting and making sure that the business is running as efficiently as possible. And that's why you see organisations that sometimes, whether they're a CEO or founder, they get to a level and they start to plateau and they just can't take that business on to the next level. And they need another skill set, which is one of these CEOs that works a listed business and just knows how to turn the dials and get the business to grow on the next level and they will take far more risk than a founder will because the founder has had all those years of 20 years of experience and knowing the sector and knowing all of the issues that they've had to get to where they are they won't take the next level of risk that a ceo that's bought in specifically to go in and grow will just be incentivized about growth and consolidation and will just drive the business in a different way to a founder or a partner so uh, I think there's I two, distinct, two distinct
0: two, mindsets. Yeah, two distinct mindsets and, and also intents or in motivations that they would enter. Tell us a bit about the value that, I mean, you and your company that you add. What is your value proposition and, and what do you add to your clients? Who's your ideal customer and sort of what value do you add?
1: Yeah, okay. So... I think from a sell side perspective, an SME business roughly running about 10 10 million and above in sales, and about one to one and a half million of EBITDA is where we look, and then everything above. And probably we max out probably about 150 million, 180 million in turnover, and about what EBITDA, it doesn't really matter because depending on the business, it can run away with itself. But ultimately, that's the kind of the profile of a sell side mandate for us. Yeah. But what value do we bring? I think that the key to this is often we get clients who come to us and say, I know my buyer. I know my buyer audience. They are the three, that my three competitors, my three main competitors or 10 main competitors. I will end up selling to one of those. You have a buyer pool that is worldwide and you need to look worldwide. You've created a business got it to an incredible level you need to look around the world and identify those buyers from around the world and then once we've done that heavy lifting and that may be that we identify five six seven hundred companies that we've identified one that look very close to you in a competitive environment then we're looking for businesses that have identified that they want to get into your sector then we're looking at businesses that are on the periphery that do they don't do the same as you today, but they do something very similar. And mm-hmm. we think there's a synergy there between those. And so we'll get that five, six hundred, whatever it is, the number, then whittle that down and identify then between hundred, anything between 100 and 200 companies that we identify are the closest mm-hmm. synergistic value that we think they could bring. And then we outreach to them and ring literally every single one of them, send them emails, correspond with them to get their interest, to get them to come to the table. The reality is you will only then know where your true value for your business lies. And by doing that we will drive different people, different buyers with different mentalities. And then going all the way back to what I said about the right thoughts. We can then drive through that process and say to them, what are you going to do with the business? What, do, Where do you see the value? What do you want to do with the wider team? How do you incentivize your team today? What education do you put into the team? How do you nurture your team in the future? And so through that and by having as much choice as possible, we can then shape who the buyers look like. What are we what, where do we see the strongest buyers? And mm. then for us to then drive the value And then go from there but all of that is part of the preparation phase and it all goes back to what you do in the beginning preparing a business for sale making sure that we understand all the elements making sure that we understand what makes this business tick what makes where's the margin coming from what products are more successful than others why are the issues what the issues in stock and all of the points and making sure that we've cleaned the business up and we understand everything then doing the wider research piece and identifying the buyer market and the buyer pool, then driving that market to, to get in contact with them to bring them to the table, have as many meetings as possible that will drive the value and drive the fit. And then from there, making sure that we, absolutely concisely drive the due diligence phase and do not allow a purchaser to have the upper hand during that phase because the last thing you want to do is get to a point where you think okay we've got an acceptable offer at x value and then you go into a due diligence phase which is in an exclusivity phase of eight weeks and then you get the buyer chipping at the price because they know they're the only ones and they're able to do that And for us, it's to drive that process as incredibly hard as possible Mm -hmm. and making the buyer aware at any given point in time, we will leave them and we'll go back and we'll get one of the other buyers if they don't behave in that eight-week phase. I would say probably 90% of the time the buyers behave, there is that element where they try it on a little bit. Our experience says that we know how to deal with that. And so I think that's where all the value comes from. What does that mean in pounds, shillings and pence is probably the point. It increases the value and increases the certainty of getting a trans- transaction done. But it mm. also means that you find the right fit and ethos for your business. And I think that's where and can I value that in a box? Probably not. But I think it's <laughs> a testament. It's testament that going back to having all of hundreds of clients all over the world that correspond with us every year at Christmas time to say, hey, this is what I'm doing. And up post Transaction says that we have been doing a good thing.
0: I'm just thinking about the massive value that you add because, sell side, you have a seller that wants to sell, doesn't necessarily want to go to a standard sort of broker, if you like, or somebody that would just put a very functional information memorandum together and just go and shop the deal around. You actually want someone that can negotiate on your behalf. You actually want somebody that that will help you with buyer selection, that sort of thing. So your value proposition is pretty solid. And I think in terms of value, I think it's hard to value the fact that when you look at a seller trying to do it themselves, as opposed to getting someone like yourself involved, a seller doing it themselves has an immense amount of distraction if they try and do it themselves, when you got someone that's taken their foot off the gas, as the Americans say, or foot of the accelerator, I think what happens is the businesses have got a potential decline or they could miss opportunities. They should have taken because the drivers of the business are now more focused on get, getting the business sold. So it makes a lot of sense to have a, a, an external party, take care of that filtering process uh, so you can get on with your <laughs> with your day job, up until the serious negotiation happens because someone's qualified or pre-qualified the buyers and made sure that you got the best possible buyers lined up. I, I just want to, yeah, does that sum it up? I just it does. It
1: does. I think the key to this, though, is, uh, is exactly what you've just said. But you want to preserve the relationship between the seller and the buyer. That's absolutely key. And at any given point in time, some of this stuff can get quite contentious. And so you've just got to have someone in the middle. And we're not there to interfere. We're there to, to help and assist both parties to get where I work for the seller. But it's just making sure that everything is understood. And good news or bad news is delivered in the right way. And bad news will come in a period of 12 months that you're working on a transaction. Something's going to happen. And you need to be able to package that correctly to be able to deliver it, and to make sure that both parties understand what the impact of that is. And so, by having someone in the middle enables you to do that. It also just enables at points in time where it gets a little bit contentious that you're that you're preserving that relationship because there may be a deferred element or a earnout that is associated with the deal, and you both parties need to be able to work with each other going forward. And if one of them's thinking, you know what? i just don't trust or i don't like you or whatever it just doesn't work so having someone in the middle and making sure that everything is done and delivered on time is absolutely key as you rightly say a business owner has a day job to do and that's to keep the business running yeah
0: for the benefit of the audience that don't generally get involved in the M&A side of the actual deal-making uh, side of things, there are so many things that can go wrong in a deal before the deal is actually signed or as you're going through from letter of intent through even through due diligence and so on. And the there needs to be guardrails, if you like, set up or put up so that if anybody starts to drift into sort of no man's land where it could become contentious as you said and because those feelings and those issues linger quite a lot longer even after they've been resolved but sometimes it's the manner in which it gets done that could be the part that's because you got someone's nose out of joint although you're happy with the outcome you still now have a potential fear so i'm guessing that's part of it It i
1: think i think that the other point is for us we are an from the first day that we sit down with the client all the way through to completion. And we're pretty dictatorial in our timeline. Every week is mapped out, so a client knows what we're doing every week. But in that final phase, in that, as you rightly say, from letter of intent, we spend a lot of time making sure that we negotiate the letter of intent as hard as possible, because knowing that a five or six page document that then reflects into a 120 page document is as robust as it possibly can. And it takes away the wiggle room in the due diligence phase. But driving that process and simple things like every Monday morning when we go on a call, we do a round robbing call with each of our project within, in the due diligence phase with all of the buyers as well and the sellers, we go on a call. And the first thing we ask our buyers to do is to acknowledge that purchase price and structure has not changed reason why we do that is we're then only seven days away from the last time we asked them and we're then only seven days away from knowing that things are going wrong. Mm-hmm. We're not waiting till the end of the due diligence phase and then we get a, a round robbing call and now we're getting told, actually, we found it goes straight to value. We're very aware of what's going on and if something's going to value and has had a negative effect, we can then decide as a team whether to carry on or to stop the process and go back with another buyer. So it just enables, it. And it. but it has to be, it is really process driven, depending on the clients, depends on if they like that idea, they realize the powerful, powerfulness of it as we get going.
0: I have made an observation, I just want to test the observation on, on, on you, is that especially founder entrepreneurs in the SME space um, often try to do things themselves first, By the time they get to a specialist, they've already done one or two tours of pain first before they come to you. Do you find that the same? I seldom find entrepreneurs immediately go out to the experts. Would you say that's a fair assumption?
1: Yes, yes. I I wouldn't say consistently. You know, you're an entrepreneur. You know your sector and they will know their sector incredibly well. Mm. their view is you know what i know the buyer i know who's going to sell who's going to buy me and they start knocking on all of their doors but in reality and it's not a competitor i can show you multiple examples of it just not the competitor and it's often someone completely outside of sector is where value and fit will come from but yes entrepreneurs will go you know what i've done this and i don't need i don't need you and that, that that's absolutely fine and to be fair I'll happily give advice if someone ever rang and said, you know what, I'm doing this and this is what I'm doing and can I do it a different way? Happily give free advice to people to help and get them on the journey. What Mm -hmm. I would say was, though, and I'm not saying this just because of who I am, there is value in using an individual outside of Mm -hmm. the process you're operating because it just drives that value, as long as you use the right people, but it will drive value, absolutely.
0: Yeah, I also think the golden nugget that you that you mentioned in passing, but I thought that was pretty good, is the fact that it's not necessarily your competitor or people that you know who are going to end up buying your business. I think a lot of entrepreneurs, especially the 10 million plus, because they're running a decent business. I mean, make no yep. doubt. I mean, once yep. you've reached 10 million turnover at revenue, you've got a reasonable business. If you get into 15 or 20, 25, 30 million, you're running a decent business. You've got proper systems, processes. You've got loyal customers. You've got good staff. You've got really I'm probably even a decent footprint in place. But it's not necessarily going to be someone that is you competing against. It's not going to be that. Is there There are other buyers out there. Yeah. And it is. it does really take an expert sell side person to, to assist you. That would be my impression.
1: Yeah. And look, it goes to the point, look around the world. Don't look on your doorstep. There are businesses out there that are looking for whether it be the next country, the next synergy value, next mm-hmm. product, multiple reasons, or even acquire hire. You've got individuals of highly calibrated, uh, educated staff within your business that, are, that are another business is struggling to find to hire, and they'll just acquire your business to acquire the, the team underneath. And there's multiple reasons, but without looking around the world, you just never know. And that's where value may lie. If you look at the
0: type of people, and when I say people, I'm just talking about companies, organizations, firms, et cetera, that would look at buying entities. We look anything from private equity. I don't even know if you work with VCs, but there could be family offices. There could be high net worth individuals. There could be corporate m and teams looking to do consolidations or expansions or some kind of strategic move would you say that's fair across the landscape are there any any other business buyers out there that you would generally look at
1: yeah I think you've got to look at all of them all of what you've just listed out as well as SMEs listed entities you've just got to look at literally everyone and don't rule anyone out but but to be clear, with the family offices and what have you, you'll probably they would probably appear in a research list because they already own an entity already that you, you there's a perception it can bolt into that entity. Taking a fresh entity to a family office, you've got to have some reason to knock on their door and get their attention. And what I mean by that is you is they've identified that's a sector they want to invest in. They are looking at platform uh, investments within that area. And so you, you can get their attention. You can't just knock on a family office and ask them if they will invest in something that's completely outside of their spectrum. You one, you won't even get a return phone call, let alone a return email. It's making sure that you've done that initial research to identify mm. where it fits. But all of those buyer environments are absolutely important. Yeah.
0: Look, the, the podcast is about the post-merger integration or post-acquisition integration. And you deal sell side, my guess would be that part of, let's say, getting ready for sale, because I see you do exit planning and you do that type of work, you would probably be also be thinking about what happens after the keys are handed over. You said sometimes the deal structure is even not just a nice clean, you know, here's a nice handsome check or a wire transfer, thank you very much for your business. Deals are often structured a lot more complex than that. So the relationship between buyer-seller stays for much longer than just a simple going into the local co-op and buying Coke and and a packet of crisps. So it's not as simple as that. Coming back to that whole sort of integration side of things, do you start thinking about helping the seller think that through what happens even after the, the sales taking place?
1: Yeah, so we do sell side and buy side, but let's deal with sell side initially. And from sell side perspective, we always say to our clients, we don't want to sleepwalk into a transaction that completes on Monday and Tuesday, you wake up and go, now what are we going to do? And what's the buyer going to do? So we always spend a lot of time with the buyer in the weeks during due diligence, not just mm. doing due diligence, but starting to think about what does the first day first week first month first quarter look like after Mm. that the business owner or the new owner will start to put a plan in we push buyers to come back with the answers to those main questions reason being is you're going back to the stakeholders and the responsibility we have as an organization of finding that right fit and ethos is to make sure that the stakeholders are going to be looked after so what happens to their pensions, what happens to their holiday, what happens to their future performance, what's going to happen to some of the courses, or the education yeah. they're on, are they going to carry those on, what are they going to be doing, so you're pushing the buyer to yeah. start thinking about what is Tuesday, Wednesday and Thursday in the first week and what is the following week and what's the next month and start starting them to think and how to plan for that and often most buyer, buyers are pretty reluctant in doing on doing that because they've got a quite a lot of information to gather in a due diligence phase they're still not 100% certain they're going to get it under their belts because there may be something but the more you push and the more you you bring it to their attention the more Mm -hmm. they start to think that way and why that works is because then the buyer benefits because the team that they acquire when they go on the Monday morning they say right you're now part of our team you're now this is what we're going to do they're now relaying a message that is well thought out well delivered mm. and this is what we're going to do this week and this is what we're doing next week and very quickly they take that team with them and albeit i always say to our purchasers, you may have the answers to 10 questions when the ladies and gentlemen go home of a night time on the end of their first day they're going to go home to their wives and partners and what have you and they're going to come back with another 45 questions that you need to think about answering so let's get the first top 10 done and then have another bank of questions and answers to sit Mm -hmm. there and give them all that information the next day because their wives or partners will send them back and go why didn't you ask about this why didn't you ask about that (laughs) so come back have that information to hand and all of this stuff is easily said than done but it takes a Mm -hmm. lot of time and effort but if you Mm -hmm. do it you really empower and you really onboard a team so quickly Mm. that you take them with you really quickly. And then you don't see this horrible drop off in productivity that often happens when acquisitions happen. And three months Mm. later, everyone's trying to question why it hasn't been successful. It's not been successful because everyone's walking around within the facility trying to work out what's happening with their life, whether they're going to still be employed in one month or six months time. They don't understand why they're working now for this new organization. They don't understand the fit. They don't understand. And in some instances where it's distinctly two different products, team on the ground, are going, well, I don't even understand why they bought us. We don't, they don't even do what we do. But if you can articulate it and go, listen, guys, you're doing this and we're doing this and this is the synergy <laughs> between the two organizations and this is what the sales team can see and this is how we're going to come together then mm. really quickly the growth of that business happens really quickly and it happens time and time again so that's key on the sell side on the other side on an acquirer side we always work we always spend a lot of time with our clients Just going over why are we doing this? I always say for for CEOs that are acquiring, this becomes a little bit like cocaine. They get carried away. They want to do it again and again and again and again. But the reality is, it's why are we doing it? Why, if we're doing it for growth, great, but what are we specifically looking for? And let's not buy something that's completely out of sector that the city will not understand when you've acquired it and then makes you look a different entity than what people have been investing in so far. So making sure you get that right and making sure that we're getting the right entity. Then Mm. spending a lot of time to understand the business, not just, you know, one or two, three, four, five, six, seven. It doesn't matter how many meters we have to understand the entity, to understand that culture that is in that business today. Does that match the culture that we have within the listed entity? Can we bring those together and gain being able to bring that messaging correctly and then bringing the business together? And then what is that value add? What are the synergies? How quickly can we drive those synergies out? Is it going to take us two, three years to to be able to actually get all the synergies, whether to consolidate entities, consolidate uh, working practices, all of those things, or are they short term things? So what is the steps to to achieving Mm. that? But I think you've got to think about all of those elements and goes back to that preparation phase that can take weeks and months to get right. But once you've done that, you're then setting out on the right trajectory to be able to be what I hope will be successful in doing what you're doing either on the sell side or the buy side.
0: Do you find yourself doing a lot of coaching or mentoring or even supporting buyers and or sellers in doing this process? In other words, helping them on the, on the human side of things.
1: Yeah. I think I've become more of a counselor than anything else. And (laughs) I think the, the other thing is I always say to the team that we should never be afraid of pushing back. Sometimes owners or ceos need to hear no it needs to come clear and the reason why no is the word that we need to go because um if we're not doing that we're not doing the service we're not giving value add but i think that there is a point where you've got to be able to stand up and go it, that doesn't work and for these reasons so yes we turn into more counselors than any other.
0: Yeah, I tend to agree with that. I want to just go a little bit into the capital raising side of things. And that's one of the things that you speak about in your first part of your LinkedIn profile. You say experienced corporate finance professional dedicated to helping SME owners and corporations navigate their way through business exits, acquisitions, and capital raising. So we've spoken about buy side, buy side sell side, et cetera. Tell us a bit about the capital raising elements. What do you do? How do you do it? What's the value proposition there?
1: Yeah, so very similar to basically the sell side. Again, you're identifying, and this is only within professional investors, by the way. We don't deal with crowdfunding or what have you. It's professional investors. So very similar in the same vein, spending time with company that has identified that they want to go on and grow faster than what they've done spending a lot of time doing the prep and identifying have they got something that we think they can get and we are able to raise capital for do we understand the vision do we understand the way to get to market and what does the money actually generate does that generate are we buying staff to enable the business to grow faster do we need capability do we need raw material what is it that we're trying to achieve and once we've understood all of those Mm. There's a myriad of examples of the things that we need to understand. Once we've got that, then we'll test that again, then rolling back to the to the client, making sure that we fully understand what we're taking to market. And then we'll go and do our research and identify investors that are within this market. But during that process is to identify what are they investing in that market? What are Mm. they what are the movers and shakers? What's the market saying? What is the market dictating that whether this market has gone over the edge and now going down, or is it a market that's accelerating quite rapidly? And often, depending on what sector it is, sometimes there's just not enough opportunities out in the market. So we know that it's going to resonate resonate well with professional investors. Or is it on the other side? And if it's on the other side, that's coming down, is our opportunity more unique? And will that buck the trend? Or do we think actually we need to stop? And once we've done all of that assessment, we then go back to a client and go, right, now we have now we understand the market. We understand you're on a market that's on the up. Understand that there's several other opportunities that are in the market that we've seen that look like this. This is where value may lie on those. This is where we think value should lie for you. And this is the proposition. And then away we go. So very similar to the sell side, again, looking for the right fit and ethos, again, trying to make sure that we get the messaging correct not doing a hockey stick approach that goes literally vertical understanding and being able to position a company correctly so that investors can very quickly you know 20 pages be able to grasp exactly what the opportunity is what it is what it does how Mm. it's going to perform what are the future potential what will the funds be used for and how quickly those returns will come back i mean again It's licking your finger and putting it in the air, but making sure that you're pretty accurate in your assessment and then putting it out there. But making a document that can be easily consumed, but the headline details are in there and everything is to an anchor point, to a specific point of data is absolutely essential.
0: Yeah, I love that, that explanation. Would you be able to correlate that to an integration? Let's say you're a 20 million revenue SME and you've gone and raised an extra five million pounds for instance and you have a specific set of things you'd like to do is there any correlation you can bring up a case study or just in general is any correlation between that and a and an integration because in essence my view would be you still have to bring in something new i mean you can't just what are you doing i mean if you're increasing marketing spend you probably got to bring in new staff you probably got to bring in new technology there's maybe a product launch. Is there any correlation?
1: No, there is, absolutely. And it absolutely is about going back to granular level on one day, one week, one month, one quarter, one half, and going to that granular level and going, right, with this investment, we will do, and this is the timeline we'll operate to, one that gives your internal team confidence on the reason why you're doing what you're doing. But it also gives an investor an ability to go, Well, we're on week four, and at week four we were supposed to have achieved this. Where are we? And people don't give you money for nothing; they want to see that money being worked and worked incredibly hard because they want the return. You just need to be able to manage that expectation and to work through what you're doing, when you're going to deliver it, and how successful you are in doing that. And people will go with you on the journey. And it goes to the there's an old analogy I always use in my team is. If we're educating someone on a weekly basis, they know everything and they know where we're at. But if you leave them for three or four weeks and not tell them and then they ask you the question. Now you're on the back foot and now you're having to explain at great length and ad nauseum of how you where you've got to and why you haven't got to where you said you were going to get to. However, weekly updates on this is where we're getting to. This is what we're doing. People will go with you. And in actual fact, from an investor's perspective, they'll go with you far further in the journey and they will f- make further investments if they can understand that their investment is secure and they are informed in what's going on. Whether they read the information or not, is another point. But investors, when they feel secure, and quite rightly so, like all of us, if you feel secure, you, you understand what's going on, you're in the room.
0: I read somewhere some weeks back where, there was something said about relationships I and mean, relationships in any sort of, whether personal or in business. But the question is, are you pushing the relationship or are you being pulled by the relationship? In other words, are you adding value to the relationship? or does someone have to drag it out of you or pull it out of you? Or if the people that you're dealing with are asking for information, the potential for assumptions, and very poor assumptions, the chances of that happening are very, very high. So unless you are being proactive in providing good communication, and I think one of the core principles in integration in any case is communicate, communicate, communicate. (laughs) And I think that's part and parcel. So in terms of each one of those three areas, exits, acquisitions, and capital raising, the same principles apply.
1: Exactly right, across the board. uh, But you've got different audiences, But again, it goes to that point of just giving informed views on where you are. And if you keep everyone informed that things, they still can go wrong, but you're lessening the chance of things going wrong. And that's key to everything that we do. So, Mark, I want to just change gears a little and go into
0: CAPEQ and what's the vision for the future? Where are you going? What's the plan? What's the dream? And you've obviously created this entity for a particular purpose, you and your co-founder. Tell me a bit about that and tell the audience sort of where you see yourself going with this entity.
1: Yeah, really good question. I think the reality is we're a team of nine now and growing. Um, do I see the team being 20, 30? No, I, I see it as a small team probably another three more individuals make us up to a team of 12 and specifically because we believe that what we do in a process not one individual can do and what I mean by that is so I have a dedicated researcher I have a dedicated financial person who's a forensic accountant but the information memorandum or writer that specifically writes information memorandum we've got a court dedicated calling team that do the outreach calling and that makes it easier but it's not it's working through linkedin and and touching base in so many different ways to get hold of the buyers because they're just it's just a real challenge. And then the research broken down as a specific and then the lead advisory the piece that James and Doug and I run so mm-hmm. negotiating the transactions and working through that process and we see each of these as a distinct element so for us is skill sets that we bring in and you get when we work with clients as a whole team so for us that that so it doesn't grow exponentially it doesn't grow a massive team for us it's doing the right thing by our clients and a selected amount of clients every year so our growth will be constrained by the team and the amount of projects that we're willing to take on to do the right thing but I think it's ultimately it's, it's for us to do. And whilst we're enjoying it and we all love what we do for a living and have done for many years, um, as long as that continues, and I'm sure it will, I'm absolutely sure 10 years from now, we'll probably be a little bit bigger, still enjoying what we do. Uh, and there's no better feeling than to work with clients that are all over the world and uh, just to understand their journeys and understand what they've gone through and how they've created an entity and then to be able to be part of, if you take this as a 1500 metre circuit, and um, they've done the 1400 metres and we've got the baton for the last 100 metres, mm. albeit that may take a year. It's such a privilege and such a privilege to work with business owners around the world that why wouldn't you want to do this for a living? Although I do question it at times where I've had sleepless nights because of the crime. <laughs> and it is what it is. That, and yeah. I, I think that's where it will be.
0: Because that was my next question is, from a, on a personal level, how do you keep yourself sane fit and healthy if you like and at least having a bit of work-life balance if there's ever something like that
1: (laughs) yeah and i think that's the challenge we always say to our clients our phones are on 24 hours a day and they are because the reason why is going back to that roller coaster ride of you know the way this journey goes you can have some really big highs and you can have some really horrible lows and that low may come on a saturday or a sunday and often we find that our clients don't really talk to their partners in any way, shape or form about what they're going through in this process. And we are a person that understands all of the moving parts and can talk to all of those parts and often become a little bit of a counsellor about their own their own lives. So it's just going through that and being there for them whenever they need it. So, yeah, it is what it is. It's part of the journey and we love it.
0: Yeah, I think that those are the most rewarding conversations is where you know that you're actually helping someone through that personal journey. Some people equate it to the euros journey, if you like. And we're not the euros, quite frankly, the client is. We're not actually doing the journey. The client's doing the journey. We are helping and accompanying them as best we can along the way.
1: We smooth the ebbs and flows. We yeah. are trying to be a consistent basis in the middle, and taking those peaks and troughs and trying to make it as less volatile as it could be if they're left to their own devices so mark
0: thank you very much just the last point i've got your company name scrolling on the ticker below how do people get hold of you what's the best way tell us a bit about that or if there's a website or even Uh, things
1: so Cappy U C A P E Q dot com Please feel free to have a look at the website and correspond and there's a chat box or just send us a note at the back end or if you wish and want to do it individually drop me an email so mark mark.sapsford dot s-a-p-s-f-o-r-d at capeq.com and that i happily correspond and answer any questions that you may have and happily help in any way i can
0: mark you've been a fantastic guest thank you very much best of luck all the best for your venture and going forward and And you're doing a fantastic, amazing thing for people. And I think it cannot be underestimated the value that gets added for what is really our clients in terms of entrepreneurs, CEOs, large entity leaders and so on. They're still human beings. And and I think you're doing an amazing job assisting those people, not just from a technical point of view, support, but also from a human point of view. So thank you. Much appreciated. Hopefully, you come back on the show sometime in the future again. And it was really great chatting to you.
1: Dudley, thanks very much. And I really appreciate it. And uh, you have a good day as well.
0: Yeah, thank you. All the best. Bye bye. Hi, everybody. This is Dudley again. And if you need help with a future or existing post merger integration, I want to invite you to arrange a free, no obligation meeting with us. During the meeting, we'll find out exactly what you need, what your challenges are. And we'll explain how our unique PMI slipstream method can help you. Simply call us or visit mergerintegration.co.uk. That's
1: mergerintegration.co.uk. Or come to our website, skillfulpursuit.com.